to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6. <coughs> Last week we saw the resolve of the apostles to continue teaching and preaching the word of God despite being harassed by the high priest and members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Holy Spirit was at work and signs and wonders and healing was taking place and God was adding to the church. And this week we kind of continue on some of the could say the growing pains of a, of a growing church as we come into Acts chapter 6. And uh, if you would follow along as I read from Acts chapter 6 this morning. In those days, as the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to handle financial matters. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching ministry. The proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man of full faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So the preaching about God flourished, the number of disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much once again for the opportunity to be here in your house. Lord, to look at your word, to see how we might apply it to our own hearts and our own lives. And I ask God that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, that you would show us those things, Lord, that we need to apply. And Lord, that through the process of being in your word, Lord, that Lord, you would be glorified and exalted. And Lord, that we become more obedient. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as God continued to work and draw souls to himself, the church increased, and so did the work of the ministry. Uh, here in this passage, God chose a method and a means uh, to see at least one aspect of his work move forward. And uh, notice the situation that revealed the need for the help. And if we could say it this way, there's a feud going on, just a little bit of a feud taking place here. Um, I know this never happens in the body of Christ, right? I mean, this is just something we read about. We don't know churches that actually have feuds, right? Um, obviously, uh, we do, and unfortunately, it does take place that way at times. Um, but we see that there is a feud here. And the feud is that there is a complaint by the Hellenist Jews that their widows were being neglected. And apparently it was an obvious, obvious enough complaint that Luke felt that he needed to address it. But first of all, who were these two groups that were feuding with each other? Uh, we see this right away in verse uh, 1. In those days, as the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews. Well, first of all, how many have ever even noticed that there's a difference here? Have you ever picked that up before? Uh, 
there's these two groups of Jews, and the first question that comes to my mind, well, who are these two groups? I mean, what's the difference between them, and why is one group kind of at odds with the other group? Well, let me give you a little bit of a, a history lesson, just, just a minor one. Um, let me give you a couple of differences between them. The Hellenistic Jews uh, were unique from the Hebraic Jews in that their mother tongue was Greek. Uh, the Hellenistic Jews, their mother tongue was Greek. Uh, they lived all over within the Greek and Roman Empire. Uh, these Jews assimilated to the Greek and the Roman lifestyle, the Roman culture, uh, though they tried to follow the law very closely. Many of these Jewish folks were members of the Sanhedrin. Um, we talked about those, the Sanhedrin group in, in previous messages, so we'll not take a lot of time there. But they were the well-known ones. They were the ones who were clout. They were the ones that were a little more wealthy. They were the ones who were attorneys and they knew the law inside and out. They, they tried to hold to the law. So that was the Hellenistic Jews. They, they spoke Greek. They were from the Greek and Roman culture there. Then there were the Hebraic Jews. Their mother tongue was almost exclusively Aramaic. And most of these Jews were inhabitants of Israel and of Jerusalem. So you have a, a distinct culture among the Jewish people, the Hebraic, and you have the Hellenistic Jews. And there's this feud that's coming between them. And once again, the complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Now you remember something. We've been talking about the financial matters of the church here in previous messages, and we found something very unique. Is that those who had were willing to sacrifice to give to those who had need. Remember this? And so, as people who had would bring their goods, their monies, their so forth, to uh, the apostles' feet, they would distribute them to those who had need. But this feud began because the Hellenistic Jews said, wait a minute, our widows are not being cared for properly. And so something has to be done. And so, first of all, we see here in the passage, then the twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to handle the financial matters. In other words, those who were elders of the company said, wait a minute, we have a specific job to do. And our job is to proclaim the word of God, not to deal with the financial matters. And can I just say, as a side note to this passage, I still believe that's a good point to make today. Um, if you talk to Paul and say, hey, does pastor know who gives what? I don't have a clue. I don't want to know, quite honestly. Um, I don't deal with the financial matters. I don't sign checks for anybody in this church. Um, that's not my department, so to speak. As Janice says about answering some phone calls, it's above my pay grade. Um, it's someone else's responsibility, and I have left that to Julie and Paul as the financial folks of our church. But here's the deal. I think a lot of problems come when those who are in authority are given too much authority in the area of finances. And so Paul, or Luke reminds these folks here very clearly that as we go forward here, he said, my job is given. My job is to proclaim the word of God, not deal with the financial matters of the church. And I still think that's a good practice. So he said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to handle financial matters. Therefore, what, what's, what's, what's the solution to this problem that we're facing here? Well, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation... 
full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. Now let me just say also one other side note, that there are some churches who take that very literally. We can only have seven. I've met churches like that. In fact, my first church took it very literally, who said we have to have a certain number of deacons because the bottom line is our Constitution says. And I looked at him, I said, but what does God's Word say? I think the part we need to look at is that they're full of, they're of good reputation, full of faith and of wisdom and so forth. But preacher, the Constitution says. And I looked at my group in my first church and I said, but what is the biblical characteristic of the men that we have to choose from? That's more important than the number at this point. And if we only have two men who fit the bill, those are the two men who will fit the bill. Not just because the Constitution says. The point is, there is a distinct role of the elder to preach the Word of God and to continue to do that while deacons took care of the financial matter, or trustees, if you will, took care of the financial matters to those who had need within the body of Christ. So, he said, it would not be right to give up preaching, therefore, choose men who are of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. And then we will devote ourselves to prayer in the preaching ministry. So, what are the characteristics? You know, in this particular passage, we see something very distinct. You know, we call our men, our deacons, um, you know, or let me say it this way. They called Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. These are all men who were chosen because they fit the description of those that were needed to distribute the financial needs and to cover especially the needs of these widows who they felt were being neglected. Um, we call our guys Brian, Nick, Paul, Aaron, uh, so forth. Uh, quite a different uh, group of guys, but I believe men who would fit the description that we find here. So what does the Bible teach us about the office of the deacon? If you would for a moment, turn your Bibles over to 1 Timothy in uh, chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we see here, not only in chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, those qualifications of church leadership, but specifically beginning with verse 8 and following, uh, we see a descriptive uh, um, characteristic set of qualities that, that our deacons ought to have. So first of all, verse 8, it says, Deacons likewise should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of faith with a clear conscience, and they must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Uh, beginning verse 11, Wives too must be worthy of respect, not slanderous, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons must be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households competently, for those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And first of all, so let me just give you a kind of some, some key words here from this passage. First of all, must be dignified or respectable from verse 8. Um, are they men of respect? When they speak, are they, are they listened to? Um, they're not beginners. They're not novices as some passages or some translations would highlight. They are men of respect. They're dignified. They're respectable. Uh, number two, they must be, not be double-tongued. In other words, they're a man of their word. They don't say one thing in one company and, and another thing in another uh, company. They're men who say what they mean, and they mean what they say. They're true to their word. They're honest. 
They're worthy of respect in the sense that their words are honest words. They're not double-tongued. They're men of their word. Uh, number three, must not be addicted to much wine. And could I just say the words here? Self-control. They're men who are of self-control. Uh, then number four, must not be greedy of dishonest gain. In other words, they've learned the value of contentment. It's not that they don't have desires, but they've learned that God is in control of these things. The materialistic draw of the world is not their primary focus. They're men who are uh, content. Uh, they're not trying to get something that doesn't belong to them. They're not trying to uh, build towards the things that this, that this earth has to offer. Uh, next, be, of sound, be uh, sound in faith and life. In other words, they don't waver. They know what they believe. They're students of the word. At least they ought to be, according to this passage. Um, they're tested, blameless. They're the type of, uh, in other words, they have character. Um, they're the type of person that when someone says, hey, did you hear what so-and-so? No, no. That's, that, that's, are you sure you got the information correct? Doesn't mean they're sinless. Doesn't mean that they're without error, that they're without flaw. It means that the first idea when their name is mentioned is that they're true. Uh, they are blameless. And, and if something is said that is of, of false nature, it's like, are you sure you got this information correct? Blameless. Uh, and then husband of one wife. In other words, they are faithful to their spouse. Uh, they've, they've stood true. They've been tested in that area. They're faithful. Uh, and then followed by they manage their family well. They're the spiritual leader of their home. Um, nowhere in this passage does it say that deacons are to be perfect. They're not. I'll just tell you. And neither is the pastor and the elders of the church. We're not perfect. We're not sinless. Um, I said before when I, in my first church when I went, um, the pulpit committee looked at me and said, so tell us one of your flaws. And I, I, kinda, and I know this is kind of going to sound really bad. I said, well, if you, if you make me mad, I'm going to hit you. I'm going to deck you. And one, one of the persons, I said, I'm just kidding. Relax. I'm not going to hit you. I promise. But I said, I want you to know something. Pastors are human too. We struggle. We have shortcomings. We fail at times. You cut me, I bleed red just like you. We're all humans. We're all on a journey. We're all trying to live for the Lord. We're all trying to walk in holiness and righteousness. But we are not perfect. His name was Jesus. Amen? So the rest of us, we're, we have a great model to follow. We have a great example to, to strive towards. And that's our goal. We're going to seek for that. But we're not perfect. But these are some characteristics that ought to be a part of our life as leadership in the local body of Christ. So when, as uh, Luke was talking here, you look at these circumstances here, he says, um, find men who are of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, who we can appoint to this duty. And this becomes very important, especially when you look in the whole broader picture of church uh, leadership as a general rule in, in Titus it's amazing here because you see what's happening you have some people who are uh, disregarding their responsibilities and in Titus he goes so far as to say as you look at these uh, these people in leadership it says in verse 9 holding to the faithful message as taught so that he will be able to both encourage with sound teaching and refute those who, con who contradict it so there are those who, in leadership, must know the word well enough so that they can spot counterfeit teaching, 
so they can spot those who are not teaching the truth of the word of God. But here's why. Look at verse 10 in Titus chapter 1. For there are also many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially from or those from Judaism. It is necessary to silence them. They overthrow whole households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true, so rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith and may be, not be, pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of men who reject the truth. So he said, it is important that these men who would be leaders in the body of Christ, that they know the truth, that they stand by it, that they are men who are worthy of good reputation, who will stand for what is right. So these men would be the ones who would be appointed as leadership, who would, especially in this area, as money would be entrusted to them. And if you've never noticed this, something that we need to be aware of is that money can corrupt. You ever, you ever notice that, right? How many people come into an inheritance of some sort and it corrupts? That evil thought that they had in the back of their mind, if I had the money, I would. And they know it's not the best use of that money, but it's something that's been brewing in their mind and they'll give into it. Money has the ability. That's why 1 Timothy 6 reminds us that money has the ability to corrupt and bring about all kinds of sorts of evilness. So we need to be careful that men who are entrusted with financial matters, financial information, funds, will do right by them. Why was it important for deacons to be chosen and to fulfill their purpose? Well, as we look back in our text here in uh, Acts chapter 6, we see it's very clear. It says, It would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to handle financial matters. So it was the deacons, in this particular case, who were entrusted with taking care of the financial issues there that were taking place. So it's important for deacons to be chosen and to fulfill their purpose. Why? So that the elders could fulfill theirs. And we see very clearly that the elder believed very, very sharply in two distinct roles here. God called the elder or elders to fulfill these specific tasks. Number one, prayer. And number two, the preaching ministry. Um, it's amazing as you look through the characteristics and qualities of God's men in leadership positions. He said there are those who desire the office of, and we looked at that. And then there's the office of deacon, and we looked at that. But the one difference that's be, that is often distinguished between the two is, well, actually, maybe two in some regard, and it's debatable. But the one that is the desire, and the second one is the ability, apt to teach. And so in the case of the elder, he is apt to teach. He is willing to teach the counsel of God. And so the first thing that, that, was, that, that the elder thought was very important was the aspect of prayer. And can I just say, pastors across America, and I have no exception to this, there have been times where I get worried about everything else that's going on in the church. And you understand what I'm talking about here. You have this person over here that has this need, and this person over here has this need, and this family over here has gone through this struggle, and this family over here. It's pr the proverbial job that never has an end. You take these issues home with you. You take them on the road with you. Everywhere you go, your phone is always there. Emails are always being sent. The text messages are always coming. And in our day and age where we are quick 
and able to have information at the speed of light, the concerns never go away. And it's, it's important that we make sure as leadership, as specifically elders, pastors in the body of Christ, that we don't forsake the first and foremost important thing, which is prayer. I've made it a practice over the last 20 years that if someone says, Pastor, will you pray for me? Right then and there, I stop no matter what and pray. I may be looking at you, and the whole time you're talking, I'm saying, God be with them in their requests, and God, I pray that you be with them. Give them wisdom, give them direction. Put people in their life that are going to help them with this decision. God, bring people past the, past, across their path that can help them with this uh, circumstance that they're going through. I may be looking at you, but I can promise you, with a clear conscience, I am praying for you at that moment. Um, I can't tell you how many times in my home where somebody will call and I'll say, let's pray right here now on the phone. Let's, let's just lift this to the God right now. Because one of my foremost descriptive needs as a pastor is to be a person of prayer for the people that God's entrusted to me. And I want you to know, I do that. Um, I have a list of all the men in our church that I pray for specifically by name. Every man that walks through the doors and, and becomes a part of this church, we pray for you by name. And we pray that you'll be the leader that God wants you to be in your home. We'll pray that God gives you the ability to provide for your family and your spouse. That God will give you the strength that you need to be the leader in your home. Those are things that God has impressed upon my heart to pray for you on a regular, daily basis. And if I got so busy doing the peripheral things of the body in the, that need to be done in the body of Christ and neglected that spot or that aspect, I would not do, be doing my job as a pastor. Now, let me just say this. It's really easy to get caught up in changing the light bulbs because most of us as pastors are, if you haven't figured this out, we're kind of nitpicky about dumb stuff. You ever notice that? I'm guilty. If I'm walking through the church and there's a light bulb out, it, it kind of irritates me. So I'll just do it. Or, and I'm just picking on a light bulb. There are people who actually change light bulbs here, and I appreciate that very much. I'm not trying to highlight the people that do bulbs. But there are times that, man, you see this thing, it's like, okay, I have the ability, so I'll just do it. But if that's the responsibility that is attributed to my position as pastor, then we have a wrong viewpoint of what the pastor's job is. Because when you hired me to be the pastor of this church, you didn't hire me to be the maintenance man. Right? Let's be honest. If we have the ability and time, wonderful. But that's not my prime responsibility. My responsibility is first and foremost, as it says here, to pray for our people. And I want you to know I do that. And I take that literally and seriously. But secondly, it says here, it would not be right for us to give up preaching to handle financial matters. So the secondary thing there is the preaching of, the God, of God's word. The preaching ministry. Um, and I take that serious as well. I know there are a lot of people who get their messages off the internet every week. Let's just be honest. There are a lot of pastors, and I know a lot of them, who starting Friday afternoon will start surfing the web. Because you've never lived in a day and an age where there are more sermons available at the drop of a hat and a push of an enter button than we have today. It's all over. Just type Google any subject under the sun and put the word sermon after it thousands upon thousands 
of sermons at your fingertip. But the problem I have with that is this. That's someone else's work for someone else's congregation and their needs. I want to be close enough relationship with my people that God's entrusted to me to shepherd that I know what these needs are. So therefore, my job is to study God's word. Not that you don't look for advice and wisdom on difficult passages. That's another subject. But my job is to study the word of God so that I can give and meet to the needs of this congregation. And that's important to me. So therefore, my messages are not going to come from Google. They're not going to come from John MacArthur's library. They're not going to come from Don, you know, John Piper's library. They're going to come from God's word. And uh, it's amazing, the older I get, the less I depend on everyone else's books. Um, and that kind of probably doesn't sound as good, but uh, let me explain that. The national pastors that come through, in fact, the last one that came through was Peter G. Bior. I think we gave him about three boxes of books. That was the second time we gave him books. I'm giving my books away as fast as I can. When the national pastors come through, I load them up. Um, they're paying an extra suitcase full of luggage to go back because I'm giving them to them. Because I want this to be the primary. I don't have all the answers. I just want you to know that too. I'm dependent on what other the wisdom of other men as well. I'm picking their brains, but I want the Holy Spirit to teach me. I want him to show me what's in his word. Uh, when I started this book series, or the, the series through Acts, I'm not going to lie, I bought a couple commentaries on Acts. But I also tell you, I haven't really referenced them a whole lot. Because I want to be reading it. There's a man in Kansas City who says, every time I preach a passage, he said, I will write that passage out 50 times. I'm thinking, whoa. I, I'm just telling you, I don't do that. Yeah. 50 times. But you know what I found out when I'm reading it, and 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 reading it? And after you've read it 25, 30 times, and then you start reading it again another 25 times, it starts becoming part of your thinking. And as it becomes part of your thinking, key phrases start jumping out at you. Key phrases that we need to highlight. That's our job as a pastor. More than anything else. It's not, and I thank God it's not being an auto mechanic because I'm not one. Thank God. Thank you, Brian. Um, I'm not a carpenter of sorts that can do anything under the sun, although I dabble with it. This is my first love. Um, I know I'm crazy. I'm going to say it. When I was in eighth grade, my first and favorite book was Matthew Henry's Commentary. And I used to sit in my bedroom at night and read through the pages of Matthew Henry. I know that's weird. But I knew that when God called me to preach in eighth grade, I didn't wonder what I was going to do after high school. I didn't wonder what I was going to do after college. It wasn't a matter of what I was going to do. It was just a matter of where. Because I knew God was leading. And God had opened those doors and impressed upon me those needs. And from that point, I wanted this to fill my mind. And so this was of great importance to me, to be a student of the Word. And can I just say, that's not just the pastor's job. It's your job as well. 2 Timothy 2.15 applies to all of us, right? Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 
All of us should be students of the word. In fact, God's word reminds us, be as the Bereans, to search the scriptures to see if what is said is so. That's our responsibility as a hearer of the word. And God's word reminds us, don't be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word, lest you what? Deceive yourselves. So we ought to all be students of the word. But my responsibility as pastor is first and foremost praying for the body and then preaching ministry to help you grow. And let me just, I don't have this in my notes, but turn over to Ephesians chapter 4 just for a moment. Let me just kind of highlight this as well and give you the basis and the foundation as to why I believe so strongly in this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. We talked a little bit about this in uh, men's Bible study. Verse 11 says, And he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, multiple of leadership, of lead teachers within the body of Christ. Why? Verse 12, For the training of the saints in the work of the ministry. So, in other words, it's not just my job to do the work of the ministry because I'm the quote-unquote paid pastor of the church. It's all of our jobs to work together and to be trained and equipped to do the work that God has called us to do. So every one of us, God's Word also reminds us in James 2 that faith without works is what? What? Dead! So God has called all of us that if we truly know Jesus Christ as our Savior, and Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created unto good works. Faith without works is dead. We want to serve him in some capacity. Our service doesn't save us, Ephesians 2.8.9. But if we truly know him, we'll want to serve him. And so my job is not to be distracted by every other little thing that somebody has an inkling to talk about. My job is to preach and to pray. And I want to do that effectively for this body. And here's the result of this in Acts once again. As they prepared for the service, the elders had the deacons stand before the company and pray over them. This is interesting. Let's, let's go back here. Verse 4 says... But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching of the ministry. And the proposal pleased the whole company. So here's what they did. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. That's not something we do a lot. But it's just something that I want to bring about this morning, just for a moment. I, I asked um, a couple of our men as I saw them, and I said, you know what, just be prepared to come up this morning. I want us to know that I appreciate our deacons. I appreciate the work that they do. I appreciate that they sacrifice their time. And, you know, of all mornings, we have a couple of them that are out of town this morning <coughs> who are away with family and so forth. But if you're a deacon here this morning, would you come up just for a few moments? If you're a deacon here this morning, I know there's a couple of them here. Where'd they leave? Don't tell me they're all gone. They're gone. They're downstairs serving other places. Oh, there is one. There is one. And uh, I know Paul is the deacon. Come on up. I want to just have a moment. And I would like to ask Jim as one of our elders and Mike as one of our elders to come up with them. I want to just take a moment to publicly pray for our guys. I appreciate them. They're an encouragement to me. Um, 
the words that I get through email, through text message on a given week, they encourage me, they spur me to go on and say, keep serving, keep lifting up. So I want to take a moment, the couple that we have here this morning, we do have a couple more. Aaron is with family this morning. Nick is with family this morning. Um, Dave is with family this morning, and we knew that this was going to be a week that's going to be sparse in planning ahead. But I want to take a moment and pray. So I'm going to ask, what's that? And you know, so we do have a couple of deaconesses here as well. So if you're a deaconess, come on up. We have two women that serve in this capacity right now. Three, actually. So if you are, go ahead and feel free to come up. And I want to just take a moment, and I'm going to ask Jim to pray. I'm going to ask Pastor Mike to pray. And just thank God for these people who serve this local body in this capacity. <coughs> so Jim, if you would lead off, and then Mike, and then Julie is downstairs serving. Yes. And then, uh, so Jim, you lift up those on your left. Mike, you lift up those on your left. And then uh, I'll close. Thank you so much for even those who couldn't be here today. I want to think of Dave as he's with his family today, as Nick is with his family, uh, extended family, and Aaron with his family, Lord, just this weekend, Lord, as they're able to get some extra rest and family time, I ask God that you'd be with them. Thank you for all these people, for how they serve the body of Christ. Lord, for the wisdom, as Jim mentioned, Lord, as they, as we talk about situations and circumstances within the body of Christ, thank you for the uh, Lord, the wisdom that each of them bring to the table in, in leading your people. And Lord, for how they serve. Lord, we know that the office of the deacon is an office of service. And it's not always convenient. It's not always, uh, uh, Lord, at a time that is easiest to, to serve. And yet, Lord, many of them drop what they're doing. They sacrifice their time and energy, Lord, to, to serve the body of Christ. And we thank you for them. And Lord, I just pray that you'd bless them and, and uh, honor them, Lord, for their, their commitment to you. And Lord, we also do want to lift up uh, Jim and Mike, Lord, and their, their faithfulness to you, Lord, and, and their capacities, Lord, of, uh, Lord, as Jim and, and Patty have so faithfully, um, Lord, every time a need is known, or made known, Lord, they get it out and they get the people praying. And, and Lord, it's such a huge aspect, a valuable aspect, Lord, to let people know the things that need to be prayed for in the body. Lord, thank you for their service and for Mike teaching each and every Sunday morning, Lord, and presenting the word. And uh, Lord, we just can't say enough, Lord, for how you work in and through the people of your body, Lord, to carry out your work. And Lord, uh, we see in this passage in Acts 6, Lord, how they, they prayed for them, Lord, and then they went out and served. And Lord, God, I pray that you'd once again, Lord, just encourage these men and these women, Lord, as they serve the body, uh, Lord, that it's not for, not, Lord, it's not in vain. Uh, Lord, there are good things that happen because of your empowering them, Lord. So we ask that for this body and this church, and we'll give you the praise and the glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, folks. You can be seated. And I can encourage you to continue to pray for these folks, Lord, as they, as they serve this body. And uh, come June, July, or June at our annual meeting, we'll, we'll start to contemplate others who will, once again, uh, be asked to serve in that capacity, in that role. It's a very important role. But here's what happened. Uh, as they prepared for service, the elders prayed, had the deacons stand, they prayed over them. And then what was the result of this action taken by the elders in the company of believers? Well, we see the answer to that in, in, in the Word of God, verse 5. It says, 
the proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose them. Then verse 6, they stand and prayed for them. Then verse 7, so the preaching about God flourished, and the number of the disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. I think there are four things that happened as a result of the choosing of these men to serve in this capacity. First of all, the proposal or the process pleased the people. Um, that's a unique thing. You say, well, I, I, you, you might have read right over that and not really even took a moment to consider that thought, that phrase, that the people were pleased through the process. It's very easy within the body of Christ to have a lot of different backgrounds, is it not? I mean, you have this person from this area, and this person from this area, and this person from this area, and they used to go to this church, and we used to do things different at this church, and, and this person was over here, and we did things different at this church, and, and all of a sudden now we're all together as one, and everybody's got an opinion of how things should be done. That's natural. That's normal. Uh, everybody has their own experiences, their own uh, circumstances that they've, you know, that they've been through, and they all play a huge role in coming to the table to how we're going to do something. And you know, somebody has to not get their way sometimes. It is what it is. You know, if they're used to getting their way over here, and they're used to getting their way over here, and this way is completely different from this way, somebody's not going to get their way. And as we've talked about in different circumstances, somebody's always wrong. Or maybe both people are wrong. Or maybe both people are right, but only one way can be chosen. But what we found here in this passage is this. Is that the process, the proposal, pleased the people. Which tells me this. They were in unity with one another. And can I just say this? God loves unity. That is a huge, huge thing. There are times, and I'll just tell you, there are times, and I can honestly say it's not in this church, so don't, probably, don't be thinking, well, who's pastor talking about? I'm nitpicky. There was a day when I was nitpicky about painting. I'm, I'm kind of over those stages a little bit. But my wife will tell you I am extremely nitpicky. If there is trim, trim should not be the same color as the wall. Trim is a different color, and paint from the wall should not be on the trim. And there was a couple years while I was planting a church in Indianapolis, I did painting on the side, and I was in some extremely nice homes doing some you know, nice work, and I'm just picky. And then all of a sudden we had a wall at church that needed to be painted. And one of the folks in the church came in and said, I'll paint that for you. And I'm thinking to myself, um, inside I'm seething. Inside I'm like, oh, no, uh, um, I don't have a good excuse. Um, um, and I just kind of looked at him and smiled and said, well, thank you. That'd be great. Inside I'm like, there's a battle raging. So I got him the supplies and the paint and had him to paint. And I kid you not, there was more paint on the floor. Even though there was a drop cloth, there was more paint under that drop cloth and on the floor and on the nice carpet than there was on that wall. What I found out in the body of Christ, 
that people are going to do things differently than you would do them sometimes. And it's okay. Now, we went in there with some chemicals and cleaned up the floor and it was all okay. But sometimes people do things differently and it's okay. God gifts everybody differently. And the bigger picture is not did I get my way. Not did I get what I want. Not did they do it how I would do it. Did it get done and did, was God glorified through it? That's important. Because if it's about how good I would have done it versus how lousy they did it, then it's about me and not about him. Right? God gets the glory. He should get the glory. So we found, first of all here, just a simple little line, that they were unity. They were unified. The process pleased them. You know what? This makes sense. There's a problem here. There's a feud. This group feels like the widows are not being taken care of. These men can step up and do it. That sounds great. Let's do it. The process pleased the people. Number two, we find from verse 7, this is huge. The preaching about God, what? What's the word? Flourished. Because the pastor, the elder, so to speak, didn't have to deal with all the financial matters. The pastor wasn't dealing with getting all the walls painted. The pastor wasn't dealing with making sure the, the exhaust fan in the bathroom worked. He was able to focus on the preaching, and it flourished. Number three result. The number of disciples increased in Jerusalem, and it multiplied greatly. How do I know that? Well, it says right there, the number of disciples in Jerusalem multiplied. Why? Because the preaching went forth, and the deacons did their job, and the multiplication of the disciples went forward. Because people did their task. That's important. And then the fourth result was this. A large group of priests became obedient to the faith. That kind of struck me as odd at first. What is the first instinct that comes to your mind or first thought that comes to your mind about priests? That they'd already be, what's the word, obedient. Wait a minute. A great large, a great, I'm sorry, a large group of priests became obedient. Doesn't it just kind of presuppose that if you're a priest, you're already obedient? Guess not. Because there are those who are in positions for everyone to see that you're in a position. And that's a problem in churches all across America. Don't question me. I'm the pastor. Don't question what, I'm say, what I say. I'm the leader. God put me here. Be careful. Be very careful. Because all of us need to be obedient to the faith. All of us. Well, let me conclude with these four thoughts. Number one, deacons fulfill their job as servants to the congregation. The deacon's job is as a servant. In this particular case, they helped distribute the funds to those who had needs. But the primary role of a deacon is not to solve the problems of the church. I remember when I went to my first church, 
I had someone come, or a deacon come up to me and go, so-and-so said you took too long in your message on Sunday morning. And why did they feel comfortable going to you and letting you know that? I'm just curious. Because as far as I know, when you got a problem with me, you should come to me. Right? So when you got a problem with somebody in the church, don't run to a deacon. In fact, don't even run to me unless I'm the problem. Run to the person who caused the problem. That's biblical. Because if they're not part of the problem, they're not part of the solution just yet. Talk to the person with whom you have the offense. It's pretty simple. Deacon's job is not to listen to your complaints. A deacon's job is to serve the body of Christ. That's their job. Number two, elders fulfill their job by preaching and praying for the people that God has entrusted to them. And I will commit to you to continue to do that. Number three, here's the third thought. When each group fulfills their purpose, impacting ministry can take place. But when I'm a micromanager trying to dictate what they, this group does, and when they're micromanaging trying to dictate what I do, guess what happens? Nothing. Because we're too worried about who's doing what. God laid out my job. God laid out their job. God's laid out your job. So when each of us does our job, impacting ministry can take place. And we want ministry to take place. Amen? If we're not coming together to further the work of Christ, what are we doing? My job is to equip and prepare you to do the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4, 11 and following. My job is to pray and to preach. What am I preaching? The whole counsel of God that helps us continue in our growth and discipleship of Jesus Christ. And then number four. Final thought. The congregation could or should be pleased for both of these groups. You should be excited for them. One of the things that happens in churches across America is they remember how things used to be. If our best memories are of the past, we're dead church. It's truth. Our best and favorite memories ought to be what God is doing currently and what we are expecting to do in the days ahead. I'm glad we're not where we were at five, where we were at five years ago. Amen? God's brought in a lot of new families since then. I praise God for that. I rejoice over that. But I'm not living there. I'm not living what, in what God did two months ago. I remember it. I'm excited about it. But I'm anticipating and, and praying that God will continue to do a work in the days ahead. There's still some people God's going to bring in. There's still some work that God's going to do. Amen? That's what we're excited about. But it takes each of us doing our part. And I'm pleased with what God's doing. I'm not satisfied, but I'm pleased with where God's at and what he's allowing us to do. Because if I'm satisfied, my work's done. And my work's never done. And neither is yours. Right? So what does God want us to learn? Well, deacons have a job to do. Their, their job is serving. Pastors and elders have a job. It's praying and preaching. And when each of us does our job, more ministry is accomplished. 
And then number four, the congregation should be pleased from the example here. Why? Because we're walking in obedience to what God has called us to do. If we're not, that's another subject. Then we have to deal with that. But can I challenge us? Let's go forward in unity. Let's go forward in obedience, fulfilling the task that God has set for each of us to do. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much <coughs> for this day.